Listening to the Drew Marshall Show, and now here's Drew and his trusty sidekick, Keith, my pathy white butt. Buddy, this is a great tune. What's this? It's guy like the guy named Howard Tate. Classic, classic stuff. But you know uh, what? Howard Tate's not our next guest. Oh, did I misread that note? Yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah, that's not Howard Tate. I okay. mean, this is a good song. Don't get it's me an wrong. It's an awesome song. But this, we're not interviewing Howard Tate. Okay, can you just cover while I sure. fix this? Sure. Let me set right. this up right. for you, right. folks. Right. Right. For over 40 years, Tower Power has been creating their own kind of soul music. Since 1968, Tower Power has delivered their unique brand of music to their fans, appearing before sold-out crowds as they tour the world each year. Tower's sound can be hard to categorize, but this might give you a little clue. Looking for a place to party. I jumped into my ride and it hits a road. Down to the nightclub You know, there are a whole lot of bands that came out of the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 60s. Uh, bands like the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Santana, Big Brother, Journey, Cold Blood, and... And a whole bunch of others kind of helped to uh, define the San Francisco sound. Over the years, the Tower Power Horns have recorded with hundreds of artists as diverse as Aerosmith, Elton John, uh, Little Feet, Fish, uh, Santana Hart, many others, forever infusing the radio airwaves with the Tower's musical DNA. Founding member Emilio Castillo joins us to share a little about his spiritual journey and the journey of one of my all-time favorite bands. Tower of Power. Emilio Castillo. Even that name's cool. I'm telling you right there. I'm expecting him to drive a lowrider, you know, you just with don't the want to mess with the name. No, you don't want to do that. Emilio, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Welcome to Canada, eh? <laughs> Thanks, eh? <laughs> Where the heck are you? Dude, you're doing a, like a number of gigs here in Ontario. How many gigs? You got like four? We just got to Lindsay, and we're in some little motel in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, say hello to Norman Bates for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man. Okay, so Howard Tate, huh? He really kind of rocked your world? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't believe you were playing that. Uh, you know, we do what we can. Yeah, man, you sure do. And and actually, my real first question is, do you still remember that T-shirt that you stole? I mean, I know what it was like. Uh, back then, there was these really popular uh, tight T-shirts. They called them Muscle Man T-shirts. Yeah. And they usually came in, like, turquoise, apricot, you know, these kind of uh, pastel colors. And uh, they had really tight sleeves that hugged your muscles and high-neck collars. And they were just all the rage, you know. <laughs> so we went in. We thought, we'll slip on a few of these and throw our T-shirt over it and walk out and... uh that was the end of my crime career that day. <laughs> you got busted for that? Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> first time out. <laughs> I know this interview is supposed to be about you, but let me share my first thieving story. I went to the variety store across the road and walked my dog over and went in. And, you know, I was so nervous, man. And I pocketed some kind of chocolate bar or something. And, oh, no, it was sponge toffee. Remember sponge toffee? And anyway, threw this into my pocket. And I was so terrified. I just knew they were watching. And I went home and. And uh, ate it and then had dinner and didn't eat too much of that because I was full from the junk food and then went to bed and got up the next morning, feed the dog and realized I was so scared. I left the dog tied up outside the variety store. <laughs> what an idiot. Anyway, listen, and I was uh, I was in New York. I was in Greenwich. 
I don't know, like a chunk of years ago, and I was I was walking around. It was winter time, and uh, all of a sudden I heard this this uh, these horns going at the, from out of this club, and uh, I, it just it carried me in. It was like a cartoon. It just carried me right in. And, I, and this place was packed, man. It was way over the fire code. And there were just as many people on stage. And I couldn't believe the horn section. And I couldn't believe the bass, the chunky, fat bass thing going on. Um, and I was I was in glory. I thought literally that this better be like heaven because I could dig this for quite a while. <laughs> and and I, I wish I could say that I could definitively recall it as you guys. I'm pretty hundred percent certain. I mean, let me ask you: Have you have you played in Greenwich over the, in the last twenty years? Greenwich, Connecticut, or Greenwich Village? Greenwich Village. Oh yeah, we used to play there all the time at the Bottom Line. I think that was it, man. Yeah, on Bleecker Street. Oh, dude. Many, many times. Yeah. It would be packed. That's <laughs> exactly what it was. It was insane. I thought I was just waiting, waiting for someone to pull the, uh, pull the fire alarm thing, and we were all going to split. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, that was, that was my first taste of, uh, of uh, live horns, and I, just, I, I, just, I haven't looked back since. Now, listen, first, first legitimate question. I, I've always wanted to ask you this question, always, and this is it. This is heavy. You ready? Yep. What's the difference between funk and soul? Funk is a very small part of soul music. And so when people label us a funk band, that really limits what we are. We're a soul band. Hmm. And so as a soul band, we play a lot of funk music, but we also play heart-wrenching, you know, uh, ring-your-heart-out-like-a-rag ballads. We play finger-pop and shuffles. We play medium-tempo love songs. You know, there's all this different type of stuff that's included in soul music that funk doesn't cover. Hmm. Okay. So we are a soul band. Okay. All right. I think I got it. I, I have this argument at the, at the pub quite often about the best decade of music and the worst decade of music. Hmm. And, and in my humble opinion, the uh, late 80s and mid, uh, you know, beginning 90s, Dude, I wish someone just blew all that stuff up. I just cannot stand the music out of, you know, the 80s and 90s. But the 70s, for me, still absolutely take it by far. Would you agree with this, Mr. Castillo? Well, I have to say that the 80s, you know, I'm not fond of the 80s. It was a hard time for me in my career. But I will say this. During any period of time, there is always lousy music and great music. Hmm. And so it's, it's not really fair to say, oh, yeah, that decade they had lousy music, because this decade does too, and so do the last one, so do the 60s, so do the 50s. You know, yeah. any time you want to find good music, You'll you find can it. find it. Yeah, okay. There's always plenty of junk. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there is. Yeah, um, I, I don't go. I don't go along with all these people that say, "Oh, this rap, man, that's not music." You know, that's not true. Yeah. There's good rap and there's junk rap. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, just like anything. Well, one of my all-time favorite songs was Basketball Jones. <laughs> we just got off the road with those guys. I know. I saw. Yeah, a clip. We, we yeah, we were touring with Chief Chong this summer. <laughs> Basketball Jones! Yeah, we were playing that song with him. <laughs> it was a great clip. I watched it on YouTube. It was fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so who, you know, I know you get asked this question all the time, so you, you probably got a good answer ready. Who would you um, love to play with that you haven't? Sting. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Man, my engineer just blew up. 
I met him at an Eric Clapton concert that he was doing at the forum years ago, and Robert Cray was opening for Eric Clapton, and I knew the guys Robert Cray, and so I went backstage, and I was hanging out with Robert, and Robert introduced me to Sting, and the first thing Sting says to me, he says, uh, oh, Tower Power, great band. He says, you know... I had a Tower Power clone band before I had the police. Wow. wow. And I was like, what? And he goes, yes. He says, we played uh, Don't Change Horses in the Middle of Stream and Only So Much Oil in the Ground. Great song. And since that day, I've always felt, you know, because of his stance politically and sort of, you know, making a statement all the time, I thought, what a great song for, for him to redo. It would be Only So Much Oil in the Ground yeah. with the energy crisis as bad as it is. Totally. Totally. That's amazing. Okay, I know you've done a lot of James Brown stuff, but did you ever were you ever on stage uh, with the man? Uh, we played uh, several shows with him before he passed, probably uh, 10 to 20 shows. Ah. And uh, one of the highlights of our career was when he was standing in the wings during our sound check and we were playing our song, I Still Be Digging on James Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Doc always says, Doc says he was nervous that he was going to threaten lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> but James comes up to us. He goes, I like that James Brown song. <laughs> that was good. That was a good impersonation. James, I mean, I interviewed him uh, a few months before he, he passed, and that was probably one of my all-time favorite interviews. He, uh, You know, as soon as he found out that I actually wanted to talk about his spiritual journey, and, uh, he just warmed right up, and his... his uh, his manager called, or I don't know, somebody in the in the in his team called afterwards and said, "How did it go?" And I said, "No, it was fantastic. I mean, we talked for about you know half an hour." And and she said, "You you interviewed James Brown for ha he has never done an interview that long in his life." <laughs> so it was just great. It was a fantastic. Uh, yeah, you know, know, there's a lot of you know uh, sort of weird stories about his behavior, but I imagine he has a lot of church in his background oh, as well. Oh yeah, yeah. One of the best stories he told was uh, he was running from the law one time, and I was t I, I kind of creeped on him a little bit where he grew up and did the whole Google satellite map thing. I was looking around the territory, trying to get into his headspace, you know, back in that day. And I noticed there's a little river that kind of ran by the back of this this place where he stayed at. And, and he said, yeah, speaking of that river, when I was running from the law one day, uh, I jumped into the river and I breathed through a reed so they couldn't find me. Anyway. James Brown. Oh, we should talk about Tower of Power instead of James Brown. Okay. Well, first, tell me where you've been inspecting my life. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later off air. So, Wiki has this down. I want to know if this is all true, okay? Because not everything in Wikipedia is true. The Monkees, Grateful Dead, Santana, Elkie Brooks, Cat Stevens, uh, Elton John, Jermaine Jackson, John Lee Hooker, Helen Reddy, uh, Rod Stewart, Jefferson Starship, uh, Hart, uh, Huey Lewis in the News, Spyrogyra, uh, Poison, it, it, Aerosmith. Did you really kind of, you know, work with these guys, with the, all these people? Well, you know, we, we played on their records. Yeah. It wasn't always like we're there with them. You no. know, sometimes you show up as just a record producer or an engineer. Okay. You know? Or right. there's one guy, you know. But, yeah, we played on all those records. I just wanted to name drop. That's it. That's it. I just wanted to do that. <laughs> Dude, the, the Soul Train clip I watched, I posted that for our, for our listeners. You can uh, check that out on our Facebook page. Uh, when you guys played Soul Train, I heard that a, a lot of bands, they were doing the Milli Vanilli on Soul Train, right? Uh, but you guys weren't going to have any of that. Is that true? Yeah, all the bands were lip syncing. Really? That was, that was uh, you know, that was just... It wasn't whether or not you were going to. They would not let you play live. And so we just told them, well, then we won't do the show. 
and they wanted us to do the show really bad. And we said, well, you let us play live, we'll do the show. If not, we're not doing it. <laughs> and uh, so we were like one of the first band to play live on the show. That's cool. That is very sweet. And we made, uh, what was it, uh, Best of Soul Train. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was a really highlight. Man. I couldn't believe it. Man. I'm thinking about you listening to Sly Stone when he was DJing. Yeah. And just that whole time period and and, uh, and, and what an impact Sly, Sly and Family Stone all had. But the dude's living out of his car right now. I know. It's so sad, you know. And uh, and I, I actually uh, had some words with him back in uh, the early 90s uh, at uh, a 12-step meeting where he was, he, was led, he was in a treatment facility and they let him out to go to the meeting. And uh, he was telling me, he said, you know, seeing you and Doc here really gives me encouragement. And I said, oh, thanks. And he goes, because I'm afraid I'll never be able to write again. Wow. And I said, no. I said, man, it, it, you know, quite the contrary. You'll write better than you ever did. And he really looked great, really great, you know. And then uh, I saw, you know, now, now it's like, you know, almost 20 years later, and I saw uh, the photo of him by the van, living in a van. Yeah. It's so sad, you wow. know. But that's a very powerful disease, drug addiction. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, here's another tough thing for you. I mean, let's talk about Rick Stevens. Dude, what the heck went on there? Well, he's out now, you know. Yeah, just like July, uh, a couple of years ago, was parole. In July, yeah. 36 years in prison for, yeah. what was it, uh, first-degree murder? Uh, yeah, I think three people. If, two at least, but I think three. And, uh, you know, he's doing great. He's found the Lord. And, uh, you know, everybody in prison finds the Lord, so you want to always doubt their faith, you know, or whether it's real. But, you know, he really seems to be living it out. You know, and uh, I had uh, a conversation with him when he first came out, and I just told him, I said, you know, I'm... uh, I'm really hoping that you will help some people so they don't have to do what you have to do. And he said, well, that's what I'm planning on doing, man. Cool. And he's lived up to it. He sat in with us uh, last week, actually, in Oakland. Really? That's awesome. That is fantastic. You know, I can imagine when uh, when y'all said, y'all, that's, again, that's the fourth time I've said that word on the show today. By the way, I'm Canadian, and, and we don't say y'all. I don't know where this is coming from. It's like a tick. You know, when when uh, Rick was no longer your your lead vocalist, uh, the crowd must not have been too happy for for a short period of time. Yes. Uh, well, you know, Rick took the place of our first singer, Rufus Miller, and they were not too happy about that either. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, we'd come out with Rick Stevens, and they'd be saying, "Where's Rufus? We want Rufus." You know, and then we, uh, when Rick left us, uh, Lenny Williams came in. He was a fabulous singer. You know, and they were, "Where's Rick? We want Rick." You know, and uh, but you know, after a couple of singers and a couple of sax players and couple of guitar players, you know, pretty soon they were excited to see who they got next. They, got next. they couldn't believe it. Yeah. Every time we got somebody, it was better. You know? Smorgasbord of talent. How many guys have come through the through the ranks? 60? Lost count years ago, and far more than that. Really? Absolutely. And But you're, are you still traveling with 10? Like, how many are on the road with you right now? Because you're, you're going to Brampton uh, Rose Theater. You're going to be there Monday night. Uh, how many guys? Ten guys in the band. Okay. And then, you know, we carry crew and a merch guy yeah. and a tour manager. Yeah. So 16 of us travel. Hey, a buddy of mine uh, named Skip Prokop. I don't know if you've ever come across uh, his band, uh, Lighthouse, uh, back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I never uh, interacted with them, but I knew of the band. You know, they were pretty well known. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one fine morning, uh, sunny days, you know, all these great hits that we all. One fine morning, that was a huge hit. That was a bigger hit than we ever had. Really? Absolutely. Man, see, you know, I often talk to Skip about the fact that you know these is a Canadian band, and if they weren't a Canadian band, if 
you know, would they have been, you know, bigger than than what they were? You know, would they have uh, beat up on Chicago, for example? I don't think I don't think that that hindered them in the least. I really don't. I think. Uh, you know, they got a good reception, and uh, they just went away. What can you say? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they they still, you know, they don't get together a whole lot and, and practice, but they still do a lot of gigs. And when they show up at a gig, <laughs> they do like an hour and a half sound check because that's their practice. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our sound checks a lot for rehearsal now, too, you know, because we live all over the nation, and to, to do a rehearsal, you know, you got to fly people in, yeah. rent rooms, rent cars, rent the rehearsal space, rent technicians. It's like a logistical nightmare. Okay, folks, on the phone with Emilio Castile, who is, of course, the founding guy behind Tower of Power. Look, you were coming from the hippie days back in the day, and, you know, the, the San Francisco era, the whole thing, and you were into it all, and I mean all. But did you did you hang with the Jesus people much that, that kind of came out of that era and that time? No, never. As a matter of fact, if you, know, if you came on to me about Jesus Christ, I immediately just, you know, got out of the conversation. I just left. You know, I, I didn't want to hear it. Why? How come? Um, there was something from my dad, I think. You know, he had something about the Catholic Church and seemed like they were asking for money always. He had this resentment about them. I believed in God. Hmm. I, I can't say that there was ever a time that I didn't believe in God. But Jesus, I did not get it, and I didn't want to hear about it. And I think, you know, uh, as I tell people even now, you know, a lot of times the Christians themselves are the ones that are keeping people out of the church, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, so it just depends, you know. Uh, I think a lot of times Christians get a bad rap because of some of the Christians who have been hypocritical or condemning or finger-pointing, etc. Hmm. Amelia, what, what happened in, uh, in 88 that made you sober up? Well, I was dying, for one. <laughs> oh, 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 is that all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I literally, you know, it wasn't as though, you know, oh, I ran out of dope, you know, I better get clean. I had plenty, you know. <laughs> uh, my marriage was falling apart. I had two little girls. I loved them dearly. I didn't want to lose them, and I was losing them. My career, although, you know, it was sort of getting back together, I had been working with Huey Lewis a lot and making a lot of money, and Huey had recorded one of my songs, but I was using more than ever, and I couldn't get high anymore. And it didn't matter how much I put in me, I felt like I was in withdrawals. And then wow. it just sort of all came crashing down a week before I did the Letterman show, where I sang lead for the band. And I, you know, I was supposed to go in a week before to a treatment facility, but uh, I stayed out an extra week because you know I was supposed to do Letterman and I was going to sing lead. You know, you can find it on YouTube. You'll see me there, 165 pounds on the cocaine heroin diet. You know. And, uh, you know, then I went into treatment for 28 days, and life changed completely. Unbelievable story. Really, seriously. You've got, um, and, and one of the reasons I, I, I like your story is, and, and maybe I've got this wrong, but, you know, 88 was when you decided to sober up, but then 04 was when the God thing started kind of getting busy. No, actually, that's when the Jesus thing happened. Okay, well, okay. For me, yeah. God happened when I got sober. Okay, all right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but to me, you know, quite often those two are synonymous, right? So I sobered up, found, found Jesus, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We hear that story all the time, or I was in prison yeah. and found Jesus, same thing. But yours, I, I just kind of... I don't know. There's something about that journey of, you know, 88, sobering up, and then and years later, the Jesus stuff goes down. So what was going on behind the scenes in 04 that brought you, brought you to that whole thing? 
Well, first of all, when I got sober, as I said before, I had no problem believing in God. God. And they were talking about, you know, you have to find a power greater than yourself and your higher power. And these people were talking about, oh, I'm going to believe in this tree, and I'm going to believe in this doorknob, and this guy named Chewy. And I was like, "Uh uh-uh. If I'm believing in anything, it's going to be God himself, you know. And I I, I started looking for people that had the kind of life I wanted. That's what they told me to do. And all those people were praying. And they were praying to God, and they called him by name. So I started doing that immediately, and it worked. So like any junkie, when something works, you do it over and over again. So I was praying and believing, and, and then I started you know, working my steps, and part of that process is seeking out God more. you know. And so I looked at all these different religions, but I kept going back to the Bible. And pretty soon I got to a place where I started reading the Bible. I went through a divorce about three and a half years in recovery, and this guy had given me a Bible back in 88 when I was in treatment. I had never even opened it. And I said, well, no time like the present. I was brokenhearted. My girls were gone. My, my wife, who I loved, had left me, and I opened that Bible and I started reading. Well, I read it two pages a day for like 10 years. And, uh, and then my wife, who, you know, I had gotten remarried, and I was always the spiritual one, you know. And all of a sudden, she says, I'm studying the Bible with this lady. It's a pastor's wife. And I was very happy about that because I was all, all for that, you know. But pretty soon she started asking me, are you a Christian? And I said, of course I am. And she says, you are. You believe in Jesus Christ. I go, no. <laughs> I believe in, I go to the source. I pray to God. And she says, well, what I'm learning from the Bible is that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a Christian. It means little Christ. And I said, well, I don't know about that. And I get all flustered. And I realized after 10 years of reading that Bible, I couldn't even debate with her after only studying for a week. And I started praying harder. And I would go for a run, you know, and I always do these affirmations when I run. And I found myself running and saying, God, you know, I need help here. I need some help because I was really frustrated. And I was worried that this Jesus thing was going to drive a wedge between me and my wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I want to know the truth. And I decided, you know, she said something to me. She said, I want my children to know what we believe in and why. And she says, and I believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to get baptized. Well, I was all for that, too. I was all for anything that made her more spiritual, you know. Yeah. But the Jesus thing, I didn't understand. And I said, you know, that makes sense. I want my kids to know what I believe in, too. And I realized I can't explain to them what I believe in, because I didn't know whether I believed in Jesus or didn't. I just said, no, I don't, but I couldn't say why. And so I prayed to God, and I said, I need clarity. I need some help here. If you need me to know about Jesus, then you've got to give me some clarity. And man, things started happening quick then. I found myself over in Europe, in Girona, Spain. I went into this cathedral to pray because I was frustrated. And the first thing I see is Jesus on a cross as big as me in this sepulcher, in this <laughs> cathedral. And I just started crying. And I, I remember saying to myself, why are you having such a hard time with this story? Millions, millions of people believe this story to be true. Who are you to say it's not true? Why don't you do what they taught you in AA back in 1988 and ask for help. And that's what I did. I called this pastor and I said, RD. And he goes, yeah, bro. (laughs) And I said, I need some help. He goes, how can I help you, bro? I said, I need some help with this Bible. And he says, 
I can help you with that. I'll be over tomorrow. (laughs) And we started studying the next day. We studied three times a week for about three months. But I I know my life changed that day. After that day, I never had a problem saying Jesus again. And I I would actually practice saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. (laughs) 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 You know, I'd be be in in the bathroom in the morning reading the Bible. I'd be going, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Why do I have this visual of Fonzie stuttering through it? Because he can't. (laughs) Well, that's kind of what I was like, you know. But, uh, I've been studying the Bible ever since. And uh, uh, Emilio, has it ever gotten dark for you? In what respect? I don't know. Just life. Just like uh, you know, dark night of the soul. Not sure. You know, doubt or is this is this legit? My faith, yeah, my faith. I can honestly say my faith has never wavered, even even when before I accepted Christ, when I was just praying to God and and you know and reading spiritual books, but believing in God. I always had really strong faith, and so even when things were getting tough in my marriage and I, I wasn't sure about the Jesus thing, I had faith that God would get me through it, because I had already practiced that and seen it to be true. And so I just kept going forward in faith. Now, have I had darkness in my life, difficulties in my life? You know, uh, I just changed lead singers, for goodness sake, <laughs> you know, <laughs> after having a singer for 13 years. I mean, I, I've had countless things happen in my life that, you know, have been dark. But I always have the faith that God has every single detail of my life perfectly well in hand. And that he's active in my life, that he's with me, and that he is worthy to be praised, and he'll get me through it. Listen to you. Gee, That's what I do. I feel like it's time to pass the plate. Holy cow. <laughs> well, look, I, I'm i really stoked about the, your journey, you know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm envious of it because I, I, I struggle. I've got, I've got crazy doubt stuff going on. And it's just like, I don't know, a virus or something. But um, I'm sorry. You just got a good story. And, and, and that's – okay, Tim, you need to come in on this one. When was the last time you heard, you heard me say that about someone so Jesus-y? Um, never. never? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, everybody's got their own story. But, you know, I can only tell mine. You yeah. know, for me, you know, I know God's got me. I know it, and so no matter what's going on in my life, and there's plenty of stuff going on, you know, I always know God's going to get me through it, always. Emilio Castillo, he is, uh, well, you know, founding dude, founding dude, I like that title, of uh, Tower Power from uh, six years old, singing Only You to the Rose Theater in Brampton on Monday night, 46 years later, or something like that. Yeah, uh, way to go, and and thank you. I know you get you know people say, oh, we like Tower Power. You know, you guys rock. You're amazing. But I really freaking mean it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. All right, dude. Listen, uh, I hope your tour here in Ontario goes quite well, and uh, I hope you pack it out at, at Rose Theater on Monday night. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Thank you very much. It's been fun. All right, Amelia. Take care, man. God bless. Bye bye. Bye. Here you go, folks. Have a listen. Tower Power. You were the hip,
movies to comedy and everything in between, the Rose Theatre Brampton presents the very best in entertainment. The 2013-2014 season is in full swing, with performances including The Celtic Tenors, Roseanne Cash, Tower of Power, Sleeping Beauty, and so much more. For tickets and information, call the box office at 905-874-2800 or visit rosetheatre.ca.